Welcome to episode 53 of the Reformed Brotherhood. I'm Jesse. And I'm Tony. And we are proud members of the Society of Reformed Podcasters. Hey, brother. Hey, brother. How are you doing tonight, Jesse? I'm doing pretty well. Tony, how are you? I am doing great. I have a question for you. Please. Jesse, what are you affirming tonight? Oh, I'm so glad you asked. Here's what I'm affirming this week. I'm affirming people that slog through some daily Bible reading. Nice. How do you feel about that? I love daily Bible reading. <laughs> it's it's excellent. But sometimes it is kind of a slog. Sometimes you have to just like force yourself to do it. But there's a lot of benefits and uh, blessings in like maintaining that daily practice, even when you don't really like feel like you want to. Right. And I've just been thinking about some people I admire recently who just do that kind of thing. Like they're, they make no excuses. They make sure that they get to their Bibles every day because they they put a prime importance on hearing from God. And I've just been thinking, man, even subtly or even subconsciously, how that transforms you over time. Like there's something about a cumulative effect, like water running over the Grand Canyon. I don't know. It's something that changes you that we can underestimate. So, so that's what I'm affirming. How about you? I am affirming an amazing book that is not a new book, but I'm, it's new to me. And what's that old like TV slogan that if you haven't seen it, it's new to you. And that is a Puritan theology, which is a hefty tome uh, co-authored by Joel Beakey and Mark Jones. And basically it's like a systematic theology of the Puritans. So they went through and they wrote chapters that kind of correspond with the classical systematic theology chapters, but they do it, um, by looking at the primary sources of the Puritan era. It's amazing. I mean, I'm only like a chapter and a half in, but I already am like in love with this book. Man, that sounds killer. That also sounds like it's a serious book. Yeah, it's wicked expensive. So I've been keeping an eye on it on Amazon with like price alerts and stuff for a long time. And I finally got a price alert and I was like, oh, go, 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 buy, buy. I felt <laughs> do, like one of those dudes on the run. floor of the uh, <laughs> stock market where I was like, buy, buy, buy. <laughs> Yeah, it was amazing. That's exactly how that works. Yeah. So let's mm-hmm. let's deny some stuff then. Tell me something that you're denying. I am denying hurricanes. Ooh, that's a good one. I have only ever been in one hurricane, uh, and it was like really? nothing for where I was. Yeah, and ironically, it was in New Hampshire. It was kind of strange. Um, but there are some serious monster hurricanes going on in our world right now. Like currently, right now as we speak, there's like almost 200 mile an hour winds going on in parts of Florida. Um, and then of course last week or the week before or whatever it was, we have hurricane Harvey dumping like 9 trillion gallons of water on the city of Houston, which that's not an exaggeration number. 9 trillion gallons is actually the number. That's so crazy. It's, it's like a crazy that's thing crazy. going on. And to have two of these mega storms right after one another is completely unprecedented in recorded history. So if I was a dispensationalist, I'd be getting on my charts and I'd be reading Daniel and I'd be trying to figure out when the Lord's coming back, but I'm not. So it's, it's, it's weather (laughs) and it's under God's providence, but it's, it's crazy right now. Yeah. But that was kind of anticlimactic. I wish that's where we were about to go. (laughs) So eschatology. No, I'm just kidding. So what are you (laughs) denying this week? All right. So here's what I'm denying. Credit bureaus. Two words, oh, credit ooh, bureau. Yeah, you know where I'm going with this. Yeah, I do. Yeah. I do. It's oh, been a rough week. So, 
in the, yeah, in the U.S., if you've ever used your social security number for basically any type of financial transaction, there's one of three credit bureaus going to track that information so that when you go to do some kind of borrowing or get credit next time, the person who's going to lend it to you is going to be able to get some information about yourself. So this week, Equifax got hacked in a similar storm of unprecedented nature for oh, 143 man. million accounts. I know. And they have data that's social security, driver's license, date of birth, name, all that stuff. So... This is both deny that because that's crazy and we can't, there's like no way to avoid this. Like they collect information. It's not like you you chose, like you went to Home Depot and used your card and then Home Depot got hacked. Yeah. This is, they just collect information. And so what I'm also recommending is everybody, everybody go to Equifax.com and check and see if you were possibly compromised because they'll help you out with getting some protection on that. Although I did read that part of the... um agreement for them you could get like your free credit monitoring for the next year which i think is what they're that's what they're offering right is free credit Something monitoring. Like part of the like embedded in all of the terms and conditions is that you waive your right to see equifax <laughs> <laughs> so i i don't i know Sneaky. personally i don't want to go to the people who just got broken into and ask them to like protect me for the next year Deny. maybe they should pay for me Deny. to go to like one of the other three and have them protect me for the next year yeah, it's a horrible situation no matter what. So everybody should at least go check it out and see if they're been compromised. Yeah. I mean, if Probably you're worried you about like the NSA collecting information on you, Equifax and the other credit bureaus, they make the NSA look like chumps on this. Yeah, Because exactly. I remember I applied for a credit card one time. I think I was applying for like a Best Buy MasterCard or something. And, you know, they go through the thing to verify that it's you and they pull up like random questions from credit reporting. And it's like, are you paying approximately $190.73 for your cell phone? And you're like, I am. That's (laughs) that's terrifying that you know that. (laughs) And it's absolutely like they know all this crazy stuff. No, I I cannot affirm enough your denial of Equifax. (laughs) We are all over the place, just like Hurricane Irma is all over Florida. Yeah, there we go. Wrapping it back up. Just like Hurricane Irma wraps back around. (laughs) We're in a cyclone of repeating right now. Oh, uh, that's so great. There's nothing like graduating again from the school of redundancy. So yes. we did have uh, a question this week that was posed to us that I thought would be good, not only to kind of open our, our conversation tonight, but it does fit in with kind of what we're talking about. So it does. What was that question? The question is from Chris Bartowski, who is one of our longest and most faithful yeah, listeners. And I think has probably emailed us. And contacted us more than any other one person in the world, which is awesome. So I love Chris. Thanks for your faithful listening, Chris. We really appreciate it. Um, and he writes, I feel like I have found a decent pattern of regularly reading through the Bible. What I have not figured out is doing a deeper study since going through the whole Bible does not allow you to park out for a while in a section. Do you have any recommendations that work well for you for both reading through the whole Bible, but also then digging in deeper? For the deeper studies, do you have uh, pair a single book with a good commentary? If so, do you have any recommendations on trustworthy resources? So, Jesse, yes. what do you think? Yes, I think we do. I love that question because I, I think if you've read the Bible personally for any length of time, you've kind of come to that, especially if you feel like you'd like to move through the Bible at some pe- speed, some speed, some speed. <laughs> And usually that's within like a, we have this arbitrary one year time frame, like read the Bible in one year. Mm-hmm. So I've definitely struggled with that. And uh, usually what I do is I don't stress about it in the sense that I have like a normal Bible reading plan. 
And then there'll be something that's on my mind that I really want to study, either a book or even something topical. And I will just make an effort to spend some time at some point during the week to study that very thing, not worrying about agenda or schedule. So it's about finding like the right resource. Sometimes that's a, that's a book. Sometimes that happens within the course of Bible study. Sometimes that happens within something that's happened at church through the sermon series. So I do try to pair it, but it's about balancing balancing that out. Yeah. Um, what do you think? Well, I think um, for me, I, I really echo your don't stress about it thing is um, God's word is there for our benefit. And when we kind of turn it into a law that we have to keep, um, not that the Bible isn't law, but when we turn our Bible reading into a law that we have to keep, that we somehow won't have God's favor or he's going to be mad at us if we miss a day or whatever, um, that can really be a problem. So don't stress about it. But for Chuck's specific question, what I've found helpful in the past is to maybe instead of doing um, your your year through the Bible reading plan six days a, or seven days a week, maybe you do it six days a week. And then yeah, on the seventh day of the, the gap day and whatever your schedule is that you're not doing your Bible plan, pick a book and read that book. But set aside the same amount of time that you normally would be reading. So for most, most year through the Bible plans have you reading three to four chapters chapters a day. So like the machine Bible plan has you reading four chapters a day. And, you know, that probably takes the average person 15, 20 minutes to read through four chapters, unless you're just really flying. So take that same 15 or 20 minutes. And instead of reading four chapters, maybe you read half a chapter or you read one pericope or something like that, and then spend the rest of your time looking at different resources, um, ccel.org, um, which is the Christian Christian classic ethereal library, which is a really weird name, but it's just an online um, repository of all sorts of resources. You can type in the, the scripture you're reading into the search window and it'll bring up all the different commentaries, free commentaries they have. Yeah, that's really and, good. Right. So it's got Matthew Henry, um, which is a commentary on the entire Bible, which is really good. And then it also has John Calvin. Um, John didn't, uh, John Calvin didn't write commentaries on every book of the Bible. So you're not going to find him for everything. But then also um, it has things like sermons from John Chrysostom and other kinds of like um, early church resources. So it, there's lots of resources there that kind of give you a wide range of things to look at. So you might spend you might spend a minute reading the um, the pericope that you're reading and maybe read it two or three times, but you might spend a minute or two or three reading it and then go to CCEL, look it up and read through a commentary and just kind of take notes, digest it. Um, the one thing I'll say is um, don't fall into the trap of like, I'm just going to read the same thing over and over again. Um Partially because, you know, God's word tells us not to fall into the trap of like thinking vain repetition will somehow increase our spirituality. And it's talking about prayer in that section. But um, there are some people who will advocate certain kinds of prayer that you just sort of like read through a passage multiple times until it like soaks into your brain, which um, I haven't found particularly helpful. And some of that stuff actually tends to mimic um, Eastern ways of thinking in terms of like mantras and and karma right. and like eastern religions so just take a book um read through it a little bit at a time once a week and deep dive it by reading some good commentaries um the other good option is sermonaudio.com has um 
sermons, literally thousands and thousands of sermons from all across the country for years and years. Um, and you can type in a scripture reference and it will pull up all the sermons that they have that have that scripture reference associated. So if you don't have a lot of time to read, you could download that audio to your phone and listen to it while you're taking a run or driving or doing chores or whatever. And that's another way to kind of help you through, um, help you kind of deep dive some of that scripture. I like it. One of the things I've done to kind of split the difference on this, so to speak, is um, this year. So I've been doing the Robert Murray McShay reading plan, and uh, to to get like this balance between you're you're pushing through the scriptures at a pretty fast clip because you're going to read the New Testament and the Psalms twice. Mm-hmm. Is D. A. Carson has authored two books that's basically a commentary or a complement to that daily reading, and they're both called "For the Love of God," which is just a fun title to say. But yeah. those are great because it does cause you to slow down. He provides a little commentary, some food for thought. And I like your idea about taking some time away because what I found most helpful is when it comes to saying, well, I want to have some specific study where I kind of get rooted in a particular thing. For me, at least, it's often less about having a lot of good reading and resources and more about forcing myself to have time for meditation. And right. that that is really where, where the power comes from. Uh, being able to really settle into a passage kind of in the puritanical way to really kind of meditate on it. So um, one other good, well, two other good resources since we're like resource heavy. Um, One for me is I liked your idea. You spurred my memory about just listening to sermons or reading sermons. I'm working through these, this book that's on the, from the banner of truth um, called the way to true peace and rest by Robert Bruce, which is a series of just four sermons on the account of Hezekiah and his illness. Super awesome. Like amazing. And that's just a wonderful place to be able to, at your own pace, really listen to that sermon as you read it in a kind of measured way, have the scripture in front of you and really meditate and study on that particular thing. One more resource would be, have you ever heard of Focal Point Ministries? Are you familiar with that? Sounds familiar, but I don't know much about them. Yeah. So that's um, put out by a pastor in California, Dr. Michael Fabares, who's a solid reform guy. And he has like every, I think it's every fall and spring. You know, they have their normal church activity. Then Thursday night, they have something called Compass Point. Compass is the name of their church. And that's where he does like a really deep dive into systematic theology. It's like a 10-year plan. And uh, so they go through everything. You can find all of those on iTunes or if you just go Google Focal Point Ministries uh, Compass Night. It's really fantastic learning. So if you're into some heavy Bible study and they have it in video, in audio, and then he has all these complimentary worksheets. So you'll learn a lot if you want to take, and that's about an hour a session. If you just put that on, get the worksheet in front of you, get the scriptures in front of you, you'll you'll definitely be impacted by that. So yeah, lots. We just blew this up. Lots of good options. We did. So yeah. speaking of resources, um, we are going to start something new. So if you if we talk about a book or something like that on the show. We have a great new way that you can help us uh, support the show a little bit. We don't have a lot of overhead costs, but there is a little bit of cost in maintaining the website and things like that. So when we recommend a book, we're going to create uh, an Amazon link. And if you click on that link and purchase it through Amazon, you pay the same amount, but some of the money comes back to us. So in tonight's show notes, we're going to have links to the books that we've referenced. So if you decide you want to buy that book, if you could help us out by clicking on that link and buying it, um, or there will also be a search box on our website that um, if you just want to help us, you can do all your searching for Amazon through that search box. And then anything you buy after you've searched through us, uh, we get a little kickback on. Man, we're just making it easy. Support the I kingdom know. with Amazon. It's it's being very simple. I love it. 
That's great stuff. So what are we kind of talking about today in the, in the meat of our conversation? Well, uh, the conversation actually flows pretty well from Chris's question. And the reason for that is because the other answer of how you do this is in a small group Bible study. And that's what we're talking about. It's kind of like what is right the role of a small group or an accountability group or like a small group Bible study in the life of a Christian. And we're going to try to come at it from a couple different angles, I think. Yeah, I think so too. And the reason I think this is timely is because I've noticed that there is a Christian subculture around this concept and it can be highly idealized in some ways, which is which could be good or bad, depending on how we talk about it. But whether you call it life group or home church or small group. It's funny how you can pair certain words together when you're among Christians and say them and we all know what you mean. And this is one of those things. So I wanted to kind of get even your sense about where is the rightful place of like the small group. So let's just start with like, how do you know small group? What what does it mean to you? Sure. Um, Well, since our church is uh, the size of most small groups, we don't have dedicated small groups. Um, But in my Christian past, we have um, you know, I've had small groups. I've led, we call them care teams, which was like connecting and relating to everyone, I think was the acronym. Oh man, Super that's good. corny. See? They're clever. Yeah. Christians are clever. And then there was cell groups and like the idea is like, well, once your group gets to a certain size, it's, it splits like a cell does, but it's, it's usually a group of Christians. Um, it seems like they tend to be segregated by age and then maybe also by gender. Mm-hmm. And then, um, you get together. And you do all sorts of different stuff. Sometimes you do a Bible study. Sometimes it's um, just a chance to fellowship with each other, which usually just means hanging out and eating pizza. Um, Sometimes it's like a dedicated prayer group, or maybe there's a topical study going on, or a life skill, and somehow like trying to relate that to the Christian life. But really, it's any time in my history, it's any time that there's sort of a sanctioned collection of Christians that is sort of set off apart from the main gathering of the church, but is gathering to um, somehow serve or connect with Christ in a, a different way than they would in their everyday life. Yeah, that makes sense. I mean, that's basically my experience and understanding as well. I think where it gets interesting is sometimes when I've been part of different churches, if it's a large church, this becomes more or less a necessary component, or at right. least it, it should be. And if you're in a smaller church, then sometimes it happens just by default because you're getting that kind of intimate relationship with others. Where I think an interesting rub is in like defining the purpose of the small group is whether it is meant to be like predominantly study driven or predominantly fellowship driven. Like we could, we would probably say that fellowship is a uniquely Christian concept anyway, but like, for instance, what's the difference between like a country club and a small group? They, They sometimes can be very close, you know? Right. Yeah, so maybe, I mean, a little bit about the history of small groups in the church. So before kind of the era that's called pietism, which is coming out of the Reformation, um, particularly on the continent, there was sort of the Reformed Orthodoxy group, which was sort of the doctrinally driven confessional group. And then there was a group that it uh, became known as the Pietists or the Pietistic branch. And um, they were more focused on kind of Christian experience, Christian um, existentialism and things like that, not in the more technical sense, but just experiencing God um, and experiencing Christian life in a sort of emotional way. And so um, there was groups that formed 
basically that were the advent of what we think of as a small group. They were usually small groups of Christians. They would get together. They would study the Bible. There wasn't usually a formal leader. And if there was a formal leader, they weren't usually somebody who was kind of sanctioned by the church. So it was usually like a group of believers getting together almost to teach each other rather than being taught by um, by a pastor or by an elder in the church. And that has been really prominent in certain streams of Christianity ever since then. Yeah, so that's important because it reminds us that the small group does have some kind of historical precedent, that it has been a part of the church. So we're not entirely making it up, which I know some people look to the scriptures and say, well, I don't see this type of specific gathering. And that's true, but some of that has evolved you know, through the way of our culture and through the way of our understanding of how we apply the scriptures in the modern context, right? Right, and you have to remember in, in the New Testament, um, pretty much everything was sort of in the form of a small group. Right. Right. The only thing that I would say is drastically different um, in what we see in the New Testament versus in sort of later understanding of small groups is in the New Testament, the small group would have been the entire church and it would have been led by the elder of the church. So sort of the the pietistic idea of like a self-led small group, which is how most of our, I would say probably most of our small groups run now, is not exactly the same thing as what we see in the pages of the New Testament. Right. Yeah, exactly. It, so for me, the reason why, and I've been a part of small groups for, for quite a period of time, and that part of that is a function of the churches that I've attended where this, I thought that was a necessary component. And that's why this might be a drastic statement, but I feel in some ways, if you hear me out on this, that the experience of gathered worship on the Lord's Day is purposefully meant to be incomplete in the sense that if the Christian life is a bicycle with two pedals, to me, one of those is is orthodoxy, which is right thinking, and the other one is orthopraxy, which is right living. So the right living, the being challenged to live rightly, of course, happens on the Lord's Day, but also every other day. And we need to be in a place where we can be surrounded by Christians who can get intimately involved with us, or at least we're allowing permission for them to be very acquainted with the way in which we live and interact and have our basic being. So I think that's important. So we just got to decide like, well, how do we flesh that out? Right. Cause that can go too far. Right. I mean, I know right, there are a sure. lot of, there are a lot of churches that will say stuff along the lines of what happens on Sunday is just preparation for the rest of your week. And right. I actually take the opposite tack on it, that everything that we're doing from Monday to Saturday in our Christian life is preparation for the Lord's day, which is kind of the culmination of the celebratory life of a Christian. And so small group has to be driving us, driving us to the corporate worship of God rather than the corporate worship of God, driving us into these private expressions of Christian faith. Yeah, that's a good point. Cause the, the small group is really the place where you should get pumped up and jazzed up for the Lord's day gathering. Right. That it, the Lord's Day gathering, the small group only makes sense in that context as like a, a little appetizer. It's important, but if faith comes through hearing, like we were talking about earlier on different casts, and hearing comes through the Word of God, and that's what's being proclaimed on the Lord's Day in particular, there's like a special means of grace happening there. So I agree that it, that can get out of hand. Like, the, And that's where I've seen in kind of contemporary culture, some things can get kind of out of whack in terms of the small group gets elevated. It's definitely not a, a replacement for being a part of a church. It's right. definitely not a replacement for the Lord's Day, but it does have a function. So I'm curious, like in your mind, what is the, the primary function? Like what what is like a good reformed 
small group look like? I, I'm presuming that by asking the question, we're both justifying that there is a proper place for one. Is that fair yeah. first? Yeah, and, and that's not an uncontroversial statement, especially among certain quarters of the reformed world. And I think um, the people who are saying, so like in my mind, um, R. Scott Clark probably would like have a fit about everything we're saying tonight. For um, sure. He'll never ever listen to this, so we can say whatever we want. But Speaking at ease. Um, the, what he's going after or what he's kind of targeting with that with his sort of ire towards the pietistic small group impulse. Um, but even like Mike Horton will say some similar things is not the properly understood place of a small group. He's going after kind of the replacement of the Lord's day and turning small groups or daily devotions, turning those kind of classically evangelical things into new sacraments. So that's, that's what they're going after. But I would say in the life of a Christian, right? The small group is um, kind of a concentrated dose of what we should be doing every day anyways. So as Christians, we should be living among Christians. We should be living our lives in, in fellowship with and in unity with other Christians beyond just our family, but at the very least with our family. And so some of the things that we try to sort of artificially create in a small group should already be happening in the rest of your life, right? That intimacy you're talking about, about sort of inviting people in to your mess to be able to call you on it and help you clean it up, to be agents of God who are being used by the Holy Spirit to speak truth into your life. All of those things should be happening. And so when we come to a small group, it also shouldn't be replacing that, right? It can't replace the Lord's day, but it also can't replace the day-to-day fellowship that we have with Christians. But it's kind of um, kind of like an intense dose of that. And right. for me, like, you know, I, I think about like a booster shot, right? I work in, in medicine. I'm just a secretary, but I'm around nurses and doctors all the time. And one of the things that happens is you get sort of these, con- sometimes you get these concentrated doses of medication that sort of kickstart a process. And then you, you take a smaller dose of that medication for a longer period of time to kind of keep that process going. So I used to get allergy shots when I was a kid and every once in a while they would give you like a huge dose of the allergy shot and you, or you'd have to come back every week. And then after a while you can kind of reduce that to every other week, or you can reduce that to every third week. And this is kind of the same principle that I think comes into play with small groups is we get this sort of big shot of this concentrated fellowship and intimacy and biblical studies and centering our lives around the scripture. And that's meant to kind of like set the tone for the rest of the week of fellowship and intimacy of all those things that you're doing in small group. It's to set the tone and to kind of foster those relationships in a different way. Right. And I think there's also this place for the small group as the petri dish in which we're not just fleshing out our faith but that we're open and honest when we need help so it is an extension of trying to think not just of taking care of your natural relations but if we truly believe that we're united under christ and that we are children of god and therefore part of this larger family that this is an expression of that it's intentional like you said so we're not with a small group you're not showing up accidentally presumably but right. this idea of, of deciding to be part of each other's lives in a way that doesn't just make you vulnerable in the sense that like you're, you want to air your dirty laundry all the time because it would be ridiculous if that's all you ever did with each other, but that you're willing to be helped and then to help others to make a step in the direction of saying, I'm committed to helping you. So just like, we'll stay on the medical theme. So just like in my mind, how the cells in your body 
uh, the ones that are closest to the wound are responsible for doing the healing. I think there's a large way that that takes place in the small group. And in fact, I've been part of churches or, or witnessed other churches that have a distinct emphasis where they don't have a lot of programmatic activity because they democratize that to the small group where they believe that is where that kind of behavior should be taking place naturally. We should be growing in a direction where we're right. working on not just trying to put together what can the church do for me, but what can I do for those who are part of the family and how do we flush it out? We get a group together that is going to meet regularly and, and eat regularly together and wade through the scriptures and pray for one another. So there is power in that expression. I don't know if it's often done well, because again, I think sometimes it can be mostly fellowship, which is not a bad thing, but it's got to be more than that. Right. And I think um, I, I want to make something, at least from my perspective, really clear is that small groups are not something that are strictly speaking prescribed by the new Testament, right? There's no right. statement in the new Testament. That's like, you shall get together on Tuesday evenings at Starbucks and read the book of Luke together, right? There's no like specific instructions for doing small group. And so when we, when we as Christians and particularly as reformed Christians who want to live our lives regulated by the word of God, when we get together in this small group, what we're doing is we're looking at what the scriptures do command us to do. And we're trying to synthesize that and be as effective as that as we possibly can, given considerations about the way that our lives are and the way that our culture functions and the way that people think about themselves, all of that stuff that is is culturally conditioned. We're trying to take the commands of scripture and synthesize that and be faithful to what God has commanded in the context that he's put us in, right? Right. Yeah, that's well said. I mean, I think there is a place for us to at least think about this idea in a focused way because we need to have that kind of booster shot, like you said, and it should be kind of a part of our regular rhythm, especially as it prepares us for the Lord's Day. But if we're not really actively seeking involvement in the church, we're not loving the church, we're not excited about being part of the church, and maybe part of that expression is saying, I, I'm just not... It's just not good enough for me to see these people one day a week in seven, but I, I want to be really involved in what's going on here. Be, besides just serving too, being involved in people's lives, which are messy and take time and take concentrated focus and active listening, that all of those are things that God wants us, I think, to participate as part of the family. So sometimes that can happen in church, kind of writ large, and sometimes it has to happen in a group of a smaller size because your church is super large. So- right. I just think it needs to happen. I don't know how, how convicted you feel about people really getting n like neck deep in each other's lives, but I think we should be moving in that kind of direction. Yeah, yeah, I couldn't agree more. And I think part of the challenge is that I think in the ideal world, in the ideal situation, that that thing that you're describing that we need to be doing would just be happening. Christians right. would be living in the same area they'd be going to the same schools, they'd be working in the same jobs and not in some sort of like withdrawing from the world, let's make a commune kind of a way, but just Christians would be so present among each other's lives that a small group wouldn't be necessary. Right. right? 
um, you know, you think about in, in like the Puritan, well, I shouldn't say Puritan, but Jonathan Edwards uh, in the American colonies, there are stories about how the plowman would be plowing his field with one hand on the plow and one hand in his other hand with the Greek New Testament. And, you know, as they would meet people in the market, they would talk about the scriptures that they were reading. And it wasn't just the Puritans and those following that were doing that. There was Moravians in other parts, you know, in Pennsylvania, there were the Moravians and in parts of uh, other parts of the country, there were pockets of Lutheran pietists and people who are this impulse to live life as Christians together was a real impulse. And unfortunately, I think the church has lost that in our kind of modern context. Yeah, for sure. And so we've kind of had to formulate these um, these small groups as a way to kind of maintain that status, to maintain what we're looking for. And that's what I'm saying is like we should be using these small groups as a way to sort of train ourselves to live life that way. And at some point, you need to walk out of the small group and still have those relationships with people. Yes. A lot of people, they go to their small group and that's where they're honest and that's where they have vulnerability and that's where they ask people to pray for each other and that's where they read their Bible. And then they go to the rest of their week and it's just not there. Right. They don't they don't spend time thinking or praying about other Christians. They don't invest in other Christians' lives except in small groups. So uh, on one on one level, the small group can replace the special Lord's Day worship. And that's bad. But on another level, the small group also replaces the ordinary six day a week life that a Christian lives. And that's bad, too. But it's kind of one of those things that like we're, we have to we have to compensate for an area that the church historically in North America has just failed at all around. And hopefully we're moving to a place where we no longer need that. But we're not there yet. And that's the danger of something that isn't explicitly prescribed in Scripture, but we've assimilated as some kind of helpful activity because I like I totally agree with what you're saying like that we've got to be careful about where we draw the line on that because just like the Lord's Day we can't worship with any kind of effectiveness or any kind of efficacy on the Lord's Day if we're not worshiping on the other six days like just exactly. to show up and be like well this is the day that I worship means that you we've totally lost perspective of what that actually means so yeah. this is the same way but at the same time we I mean, we I mean I have to be careful in my own life not to just throw the baby out with the bathwater because I'm certain I'm certain there are people listening who've had really great experiences. They're in small group, life group, cell group. What was the other thing you called it? Care, care group. Care group. Yeah. I love this. See, so many names for something that they're trying to get to the you know, like the center of what right. it means to be with one another, but not in like a super staged way. So it's not like you just show up on Thursday night, you talk to those people, and then you don't see them until next week and you don't right. do anything about it. Like that's also an adventure in missing the point. So it is this, we got to affirm this kind of balance, but I think it is really important. I mean, I think it's crazy important. Like, I would, I would encourage anybody who isn't seeing themselves involved actively in the lives of other people, either being mentored and mentoring, that they need to get on that because they're missing something really critical about the Christian life. And there's plenty right. of, of scripture for us to kind of support that idea. One of the things that's been helpful for me, just to think about size interaction, it's a weird thing to say, but the inter interaction of like groups of different sizes is there is some interesting example I see in, in Jesus, like in his life, as he's going through his ministry, as he's working with people, he's working, if you look through the scriptures and pay attention to this, of course, with many different sizes of groups, like some of that is logistical and others is, is super intentional. Right. So we have, you know, obviously him preaching to masses, but then on the other extreme is during the transfiguration, it's just Peter, James, and John. 
So he's investing especially, and I've, I've struggled with this because I think psychologically, and this marries up with the scriptures, you really can't get to know that many people that deeply. Right. You know what I'm saying? So there has to be an outlet for us if this is a real thing to say, besides like your spouse, which is again, the closest thing to your natural family that you can possibly have, how are we going to really invest in the family of God? And how many people is it reasonable to like, quote unquote, be real with? Because I hear that a yeah. lot. Have you, have you yeah. thought about that? Like, how many people can you really be real with? Yeah. And I think, um, you know, I think we love the idea that we go to church and depending on the size of your church, this may or not be the, be the case, but we love the idea that we go to church and everybody is known by everybody and everybody right. likes everybody and everybody gets along with each other. And that's, I mean, that's just not reality. And until we are restored in glory, that's not going to be the reality. And so, I mean, even in heaven, it's not like we become omnipresent and omniscient. So there are going to be millions of people on the new earth. There will probably be people that I never interact with. I mean, I suppose we have eternity. Maybe there'll be some sort of rotation and we have to like go have lunch with a different person every day until we've met everybody, but probably not. And that's not the point. (laughs) But when we come to church, you know, if you go to a church of 15 people, well, yeah, then you should probably get to know everybody and you should spend time investing in everybody's life and you should pray for everybody. But if you go to a church of 6,000 people, it's just not feasible for you to have real relationships with 6,000 people. And even if it was feasible, it's not healthy. So, you know, that's, that's, I suppose you can get into conversations about like, well, how big should a church be? Is there an upward limit? And we've had, we've had some of those discussions in the past. But I think that we have to recognize that this sort of small group impulse is going to happen no matter what we do. It's just in the American church, we've chosen to be particularly intentional about it. So I'm going to have a circle of people at my church that I'm closer to, that I spend more time with, that I want to go to the movies with or have lunch with after church. And those probably will be the people that I would also, you know, if I'm having a spiritual difficulty, those are the people I'm going to call to pray with. If I have a question about the Bible, those are the people I'm going to talk it over with, uh, you know, in addition to my pastor. And what we've done with small groups is we've taken that sort of organic process then and we've made it artificial. And mm-hmm. I think that, that there might be some fruit that the church can look at in North America to look at making those processes more or back to being more organic. Right. Because I remember the church that we were at in Connecticut, there was like 15 groups and they were all topical and they were like, we'll accept people, women between this age and this age who have an interest <laughs> in this topic. And I'm going, okay, but what if, what if I have an interest in that topic? Right. Can I go to this group that's for women between the ages of 40 and 50? if I'm interested in this topic, no, I couldn't. And to me, that sort of seems like a problem. And the other side is I think we also sometimes segregate ourselves naturally and we need to push back against that in some senses. Right. There's a balance somewhere in there that I don't I don't know what the balance is because it is healthy to spend time with people who are in similar stages of life in you that are going through the same kinds of struggles, but it's not healthy to isolate yourself from people who are in a different stage of life or are going through different struggles. That's what makes this thing so hairy in my opinion, because I can see why some people just get fed up with the idea and say, well, it's not, 
it's not unbiblical, but I don't find the exact kind of support that we were talking about it in the scriptures. And so I see a lot of segregation. I see it seems to enforce a lot of behavior that I don't think is particularly helpful, whether that's we segregate by topic of interest or we segregate by season of life or we segregate by uh, race or culture. All those things happen in, in small groups for sure. But yet, yeah, I like what you're saying about the, the idea of an impulse, I think is the right description for this because there's something within us that wants to engage in a way, as we're growing, as, as God moves us from glory to glory by the power of the Holy Spirit, where we do want to get involved with people and get deeper. And we realize that there, the time of worship, gathered worship on the Lord's Day is not exactly that space to do that exact thing. And even if right. you have, you complement that with like Sunday school and an average, let's say an average church is something like 250 people. To your point, you just can't know everybody there. And it would be unreasonable to know everybody there. And when somebody right. says to you, when you walk into that kind of place, how are you doing? That's definitely more salutation than it is for you to like, just like more, more often than not, like the person, the, the usher, the greeter is not asking you to like dump your weekly life story on them as they hand you a bulletin and say, how are you doing this? Morning? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> so there is a place for that kind of thing. And so I, I can see why it's just, it's just hard to balance this. And I, I struggle with that in my own life is how do we get to the place where, we're fellowshipping and it's coming to a point where it's organic and we are doing life together, though our, our schedules are crazy, but we're really trying to get involved in each other's lives in a way that seems like it's the, the intimate blood of Christ that's uniting us in a way that's truly family. So, I mean, I don't know if you've, you have any ideas on that kind of thing. Like, what, what, let me ask it this way, because I'm kind of, I'm always curious about this kind of thing. So, you've been part of uh, small groups in the past. Like, what has worked in your opinion really well? In, small, in a small group? Like what's a, a place we've been like, this was, this was awesome. Yeah. Uh, I mean, unfortunately, as I think back on my Christian life, I don't have any really great examples because I really? think, yeah, I mean, I, I led a small group in, in Connecticut that um, was young adults and it, it worked, it worked on a certain level of getting us in the word daily. Well, not daily, but getting us in the word weekly and, for me daily, cause I was leading it. So I had a lot of preparation to do, but it, it also sort of helped foster those relationships. Like I was saying earlier, it was a group of people that probably should have been friends with each other, but just because of the circumstances of our church, we, we didn't all have relationships with each other. And so this brought us together we got to know each other. And then it did sort of spawn some friendships and some relationships out of that, that may not have come together in another, you know, another context. Um, but there were also some downsides to that is that we were 20 and 30 somethings and we were isolating ourselves from the adults in the church. Right. Um, and I, I say that as the 30 something that was saying the adults in the church, right? There were, <laughs> there were people in the church that had a wealth of wisdom in the scriptures and, and in history and life, um, that, you know, we didn't have access to during that time. And I think that's the danger is like, we try to. We try to skirt that balance, but at the same time, a, a small group that is, well, I shouldn't say this, but in a lot of cases, the small group that is sort of the spans the gamut of generations doesn't work. It just doesn't click because the people who are in their 20s have a totally different kind of question about life than the people who are in their 50s and 60s. Yeah, so, for sure. I think that a small group is really hard to do well, to be honest. And I think that because it's so difficult to do well, we sometimes um, settle for doing it poorly. Right. 
And so I think, you know, maybe it would be good for us to to talk about some of the biblical principles that we think lead to a small group. Yeah, let's do that. And maybe how they apply. So did you have any any passages in mind um, kind of that give us principles for why we would need small groups or why we would want small groups? Well, so one that I often kind of think about in this context is from Ephesians chapter 2, 18 and 18 through 20. And this is a bit, I want to say it's out of context, but it's, it at least leads me into this thought. So here's, let me just read the verses. For through him, we both have access in one spirit to the Father. So then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone. And what I think Paul is driving at there is he's not just paying lip service to this general idea, like we sometimes do, or at least I do, that, yeah, of course, we're all united under Christ and it's cool we hang out together or you meet somebody from around the world who's also a Christian and you have more in common with that person than your next door unbelieving neighbor. Sure, all those things are true. But what he's really driving at here is if you're really fellow citizens, if you're really no longer aliens and strangers, but members of a household this household is an intimate dwelling together of the people of God. And it's got to be more than just, I know your name, I know where you live, but that I'm in the trenches with you, like standing shoulder to shoulder. I'm sharing in, as Paul says elsewhere, like sharing genuinely in the struggles and then rejoicing genuinely together in the things that are being accomplished in the believer's life. So this leads me to believe that there's got to be more, that there is something more that God wants of us together and that the community hermeneutic, like we've talked about before, happens sometimes on Sunday mornings, but again, more often than not, it happens like over the cup of coffee when you're really in a dark place with right. somebody whom you trust, or it happens when you're on your knees with this group of people that you've really entrusted your vulnerability with, and you're wrestling over the things of God. So I think this idea of the household of God is kind of some of the centerpiece that I think the scripture leads us to consider this Small. It just sounds so corny saying it though. Like this small group. I'm putting in quotations, which nobody can see except for you. Um, of this <laughs> and idea. I can't even see it because your hands were off the side of your screen. Oh yeah, my my hands are moving all over the place right now. So, <laughs> I mean, what about you? Where do you go to the scriptures to kind of glean this idea? Well, I think just to sort of piggyback off what you're saying, you know, if we think of the church as a family, and you think about your family um, and how a family unit functions, is you have um, your everyday life that is kind of lived in each other's presence, but not necessarily directly in each other's presence, right? Right. That would but be you annoying. have these you have these moments that you get together and you are have these concentrated times of interaction, right? So you think of how important it is. They've done a lot of studies about how important it is in the life of a teenager to have a sit down meal with their family. How much of a difference that makes in terms of their performance in school, their grades, their behavior, all of those things, just the very act of sitting together as a family over the dinner table changes things. And so I think I think the principle that you're pulling from that passage is that we're a family of believers. And so, yes, we should be doing life together as a whole. But we also should have these concentrated times of interaction, which would be sure. analogous to like the dinner table or the breakfast table or wherever your family gathers during the day. Um, and, you know, I kind of did the same thing and think of the same thing where the passage that I'm looking at is obviously not speaking directly to small groups because the church was a small group in the first century. But it's from the book of Hebrews from uh, chapter 10, verse 24 and 25. It says, let us not consider how and let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works 
not neglecting to meet together as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another and all the more as you see the day drawing near. And so for me, I look at this passage and I I think that this is the author of Hebrews is talking about the fellowship on the Lord's day, but there's an element of the fellowship on the Lord's day, the gathering of the saints it's hard to stir one another up if all that you do on the Lord's day is get together and listen to a sermon. Exactly. Right. There's no stirring one another. In exactly. That right. So whatever the author of the he- of Hebrews here, let's just call him not Paul. Um, whatever <laughs> not Paul is doing here, he's not saying don't forget to go to church on Sunday. Right. And in the early church, even if Sunday was the gathering day, there was more going on on Sunday than just listening to a sermon. There was probably a shared meal. There was probably more intense prayer. There was probably time for people to to speak with each other and discuss what's going on in their life. And all of the things we associate with small groups was happening on the Lord's Day. And that's what it's talking about is let us consider how to stir one another up to love and good works. And for me, one of the primary ways that we do that is with this kind of intense um, intimacy that we're talking about that in our context takes place in small groups usually. Right. That's well said. I mean, I like the idea of stirring because uh, when you're making cookies, like you don't just give it one or two spins. Like You really got to get in there and work it out. And I think that that's part of what we're talking about here. Plus, I think there's like a something to be said for this idea of, of mutual help. And, you know, for instance, like if you're going to move or you need somebody to, I don't know, pick you up from a doctor's appointment or something, who are you going to call? And obviously, I think we'd all say, well, that's the responsibility of the church, the family of God. But I mean, logistically and practically, who are you going right. to call? I can't call somebody I don't know. Maybe I could call my one of my elders. I'm sure they'd be happy to do that. At, at the same time, there's something to be said for, you know, having a group of people who know you and know your life circumstances and are invested in, in you as you are in them. So I, I think, I guess where I'm coming to is that maybe the small group is for us in this period of time, in this epoch, like the the method by which we have to bring that in. And unfortunately, we have to bring it in in sometimes a contrived or staged way. Yeah. But we need it. And there, like you said before, there's an impulse there. So we have to reconcile these things and, and make sure that they can be as, as helpful as possible without being as damaging as possible. Yeah. So I think, um, I, I think probably we're winding down. I do want to make it really clear, though, that small groups, even though I think we've made a pretty good case for kind of their importance and for the fact that they are necessary from like a practical standpoint in our context, I want to I want to make sure that I'm adequately kind of pushing back against some of the ideas that like small group is a mandatory feature of the Christian life. Right, exactly. Because it's not, and it wasn't for thousands of years in the Christian church. Um, the the idea of a small group is a basically unheard of thing until like 1800s, the late 1700s. Um, you know, John Wesley's like Holy Club was like sort of the first idea of a small group in in recorded history, um, because the the place that a small group fills was usually the family and your immediate community. Right. Exactly. So if if you're in a context where um, it would be just totally unrealistic to be a part of a small group. I know people who literally drive an hour to get to a faithful Bible church. Um, it's not realistic to think they're going to go into and drive another hour, another night or two nights a week to go to small group. 
and that's okay. It's it's really kind of sad for them that they can't participate in that way, but it's not like they're getting a demerit on their heavenly scorecard for not being a part of a small group. Yeah, I agree. And if you're Amish, obviously, this also this whole episode doesn't apply. You're, prob- well, you're probably if you're Amish that. and you're hearing this episode, then you're not very good Amish. Well, no, you can so that the Amish can have cell phones because they're not wired. It's about wires. I thought it was. Have you heard that? Yeah, it's it, there's a lot of like leeway. It's I understand it as connectivity. So if you're a lot of Amish have cell phones, yeah, they're rocking out iPhones all over the place. They don't mess around. That's that's ironic that it's it's about connectivity, but they have iPhones, which is arguably going to get them more more connected. Yeah, more connected. <laughs> that reminds me of like the Jewish principle of like carrying a brick around, so you're never more than a half mile away from your house because it's a brick yes. from your house. Yes, exactly. Same principle, but. Yes. I like your point because I want to emphasize that too in a way that I'm not de- thinking about small group in this kind of narrow sense of you have to be physically present with people on a regular schedule. Certainly that's helpful, but even for the person that lives far away, having a group of people that they interact with through some other means, support for prayer, and even just conversation over the phone or through text is important. So I think I think what we're saying is this impulse has existed, of course, through all of human history, and it's just that this kind of organic life building together was happening in some facet. It seems to be absent and yet we know it's absent. And so now we've, we've right. inserted this small group to kind of fill that role. So I guess the encouragement would be find a place, small group or not, where that need can be met in your life. And you can equally meet others' needs by, again, rejoicing, having genuine affection with them and, and suffering alongside of them. So wherever yeah. that needs to happen, maybe that happens, like you said, at your church, or maybe that happens in a small group, but just make sure you're getting some action there. Yeah. Yeah. I couldn't have, <laughs> I couldn't have said it any worse than that or any better than that. I, I, should we edit that out? I feel no. like we shouldn't. It's classic. No. It's, um, <laughs> it's already happened. So you heard it here first, get some small group action. That's what I was talking about. <laughs> it's getting worse. It's getting so it's, much worse. <laughs> It's gonna, I was going to make a comment about marriage being a small group, but never mind. It's already happened. So, so since I, I just horribly botched that up, Tony, do you have any last words, last remedial words that will really just bring this back on point and make it holy again? Um, I don't know if I can make it holy again, but I would just say like, just to echo what you said before the unintentional entendre there, um, Find a way to get plugged in, not to your church in terms of the institution you're a part of, but into your church in terms of the organic body that you're a part of. Amen. And that's really what a small group is about, is about being a functional part of the family of God or the body of Christ. Those things are the same and finding a way to really be a part of that. Um, For some, just being a part of the Lord's Day worship is how you do that. But for most, um, most people in most church contexts, you're not going to be involved in the kind of fellowship that Christians are supposed to have unless you're um, engaging that outside of the context of the Lord's Day as well. Right on. Man, is it right me on. or is it getting hot in here? <laughs> I think it is. <laughs> I think it is. So speaking of being part of a larger group, how can people become part of our group? If they want to get some Reformed Brotherhood action? Yeah, you know it. <laughs> This is all over, Jesse. Episode 53 is where we jump the shark. Um, you can get a hold of us That's in a, a variety run. of ways. You can go to our website, uh, reformbrotherhood.com. 
Uh, you can check out all of our past episodes, uh, links to subscribe on all of your favorite podcatchers, and also links to our contact information. Uh, you can tweet at us at Reform Brohood. Uh, you can uh, like us on Facebook, and you can send us messages and stuff like that on uh, our Facebook page. Search for Reform Brotherhood. You can email us at Reform Gmail, uh, Reformed Brotherhood at gmail.com, like Chris did. <laughs> Um, and, uh, you can also call us on our voicemail, which is 607-444-2767. Bros. Bros. Um, and we would love to get any feedback. We don't ask for it very often because I've recently found out that rating is on iTunes don't actually matter, but, uh, they do help us feel better about ourselves. So if you wanted to go to <laughs> iTunes and give us uh, some five star action, that would be awesome. Uh, other than that, Jesse, do you have any other thoughts before uh, we pull this train wreck over? Yeah, this just can you pull a train over? You can if you don't. Jump you the just rails, stop that train? Oh, okay, yeah, that's a good point. We're way <laughs> off the tracks now. I let, this just brings new in, new meaning to a call a call to action. That's all I gotta say. <laughs> <laughs> oh man. Uh. Well, on that note, uh, until next time, honor everyone. Love the Brotherhood. Oh.